Well, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you would notice that there is a lot of talk about debt. Um, we've got conversation about the United States debt ceiling and uh, where that's at right now. We've bumped it up to $31.4 trillion that the U.S. government can borrow, which is like mind-boggling if you think about that. $31.4 trillion. But also there's been a little bit of conversation about student loan forgiveness. If you've uh, heard that, there's this idea that uh, the government might forgive students uh, who have loans out uh, up to $20,000 per student. So there is a lot of conversation, either it's about this debt ceiling or about student loan forgiveness. Uh, but when you look at it, America is really a nation that is in debt. And it doesn't have to do just with uh, the government, but there's a huge level of consumer debt. Uh, this year, consumer debt was at $17 trillion. Just let that sink in for a bit. $17 trillion. That includes mortgages, uh, college loans, um, other kinds of loans, credit card debt. Credit card debt alone was at $1 trillion. So Americans hold together corporately $1 trillion in credit card debt. So that means the average American is about $96,371 in debt. So each one of us, we divided all that up, each one of us would hold $96,000 in debt. Whew. Uh, so, and about, you know, every American, if we were going to average that up and just kind of to see what that looks like for each of us, that means about n every one of us would be spending about 9.6% of our income to pay for that debt, to pay on the interest on that. Wow. Okay, so that, you know, if you think about it, it's just staggering to think about how much our nation is in debt. And the chances are, given those statistics, as we look around our room, that most of us have some form of debt. Maybe that's a mortgage, maybe that's a credit card. And many of us may have experienced that in the extreme. Many of us may have experienced the, the pain, uh, the helplessness of that, the overwhelming feeling of how am I going to pay this back? So there's that aspect of it, sure. But, you know, when I, when I look about it and I ask, why, why are we in debt? And there are a lot of answers for that, right? There are some practical things. It might be some economic pressures. For example, one of the things that's happening right now is inflation. And as people experience inflation, they may feel the pressure to pay for that somehow, and they might use their credit card in a moment of stress to go over that. So that might be one of the reasons why right now consumer debt is rising. But I have to take a step back and ask if there's more to this picture than just an economic reality. Are there some spiritual elements to this? Is there some sense about why we are in debt as a nation having to do with this idea that I deserve this? I mean, that's what our advertisements tell us, right? You deserve this. You need this. You want this. Is there some sense as Americans that we aren't willing to limit ourselves, that we feel like we must have more? Or is there some sense in, in understanding what debt is that our anxieties pull us to this, right? We talk about retail therapy, that when we are feeling anxious, we need something to help us to feel better, and usually it's stuff. And so we might go into debt to help us to feel better, to deal with life and the way things are. And when we take a kind of step back and we look at how we are as Americans and how in debt we are, 
we begin to wonder how much we are owned by our stuff, how much we might be actually in bondage to all of that. Woo! Okay, that's a start, huh? A little bit heavy. Way to, way to start something talking about this. We have been in a series where we have been talking about party as a witness, and we have been in the book of Leviticus in chapter 23, and we have gone through seven feasts that God gave the people of Israel. And as we have walked through these feasts, we have seen these beautiful ways where God shows something about himself, but also some ways that we as a people, when we practice, when we live into these kind of feasts and some of these embodied practices that the feasts point to, how we can witness to who God is as a God, right? So there's been a lot of really uh, cool stuff for me as we've done this. But as you might notice, there were seven feasts, and we are now in week eight of the series. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about Jubilee. And I'll explain a little bit about what Jubilee is if you don't know what it is. But Jubilee, and the reason why we're ending our series on Jubilee, is because Jubilee is kind of the party of all parties. It is the one to beat them all. It is, it is pretty amazing as a practice and as a party, as we shall soon see. But Jubilee was all about freedom. So keep in mind this idea of our nation and how much in debt we are as we begin to talk about Jubilee and what that means for us. So Jubilee is in Leviticus chapter 25, not 23, just a few more chapters on from what we've been in. So if you have your Bible, you can turn open to chapter 25 or you can follow along on the screens up here. I'm going to read at length, so bear with me. But we want to really get a good grasp of what Jubilee means, so I'm going to read half the chapter. Woo! Okay, here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year it shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap your, what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servants, slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. I'm going to skip a little bit because he discusses how you could sell your land given the light of jubilee. Um, it's very interesting. But we shall skip on to verse 18. It says this, Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? 
I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. This is the word of the Lord. And so Jesus, illuminate this for us, for something that is ancient, for something that is thousands of years old, where we know that it still has some meaning for us today. So through your spirit, would you reveal that to us, speak to us, we ask in your name, amen. So there's some elements here, and I read it at length because I wanted you to kind of grasp the picture of what this celebration was like. Basically, every seven years, there was what they call a Sabbath year. It wasn't necessarily the Jubilee itself, but it was a Sabbath year, and there was no sowing or reaping. So all those farmers would just put paws on their land, and they would not sow or reap. An additional detail that's not in here is that during the Feast of Booths, during that seventh year, there would be a reading of the law. Fun little detail. Then, on every 49th year, actually after every 49th year, on the 50th year, there was something else that would happen. And this is where, really what Jubilee is, right? It's an, it's an addition. It's interrelated to this idea of seven years and of the Sabbath year. But in addition to that, on this 50th year, all of the slaves or servants would be released. Debts would be forgiven. Land would be returned if it was sold. And this would happen on that 49th year, on the Day of Atonement. Right? So the Day of Atonement when the scapegoat was sent out to the desert and a shofar was blown to celebrate and to announce this year of Jubilee. As a matter of fact, the word Jubilee comes from ram or ram's horn. So it's an idea, the very idea of Jubilee is linked to this idea of blowing a horn of celebration of freedom. And when you listen to this, when you read all this, I kind of step back and I just think, gosh, this is so radical. This is so radical in so many different ways. And it's interesting to kind of break down and think about the implications of this, what, what this must have been. And what and why it was radical. The first thing that stands out to me is this idea that the land needs rest. That the land deserves the same kind of dignity and the same kind of pause that human beings do. That's so fascinating to me that God looked at his creation and said, actually, the land needs to pause. The land needs that kind of rest, just like human beings do. So that seems to me pretty radical in and of itself. The other thing that's very striking about the practice of Jubilee is that there was a kind of radical trust in God's provision. And you can tell it's radical because God kind of gets it, right? So there's a part in here where he's like, well, what, do I, what, if, what if you say, well, what am I going to do in that year? How am I going to eat, right? So he knows that people are going to be anxious about doing this because it is radical. It's radical to stop, especially in an agrarian kind of society that relied on crops for food to just pause and say, nope, we're not going to do it this year. And it's also radical, the level of God's provision, because one of the things that was happening here is that every seven year, there would be a Sabbath year, but on the year of Jubilee, that would be in addition to the 50th year. So there were actually two years where God was telling them on the year of Jubilee, don't sow or reap in your gardens, right? So that's pretty radical. 
that level of provision and that level of trust. Then the third thing that really strikes me about the radicalness is, is you just have to reflect and think about who would not be excited about Jubilee? Well, it would be the rich and the powerful, right? If you were someone who owned servants or slaves, if you were someone who owned land, Jubilee was not a great year for you. You lost a lot of capital. You lost a lot of uh, workforce. But the flip side of that is that, and the radical part of that, is God is so radically for the poor in this, right? He is definitely on the side of the downtrodden, those who don't uh, who are experiencing misfortune in life. And even as you go into this, you see how much God understands about what it means to be poor. God understands poverty. He understands the dignity of ownership. He understands that poverty has a generational nature, that families can get locked into poverty and that it affects kids and then generations after that and generations after that. He understands the feeling of powerlessness and helplessness that might be in uh, experience of poverty. He understands that there is exploitation at work here, that the weak are exploited by the powerful. And so there's this, these radical things about uh, a, a jubilee that can really strike us. And, it, you know, one of the ways that we can really take this is trying to imagine jubilee being implemented in our own society. Can you imagine? It would be total societal collapse. I'm not kidding. Like, our banking system would just implode if we just forgave all the debts. $17 trillion up in smoke, right? It's, if you just think about even that, of course, that's a grand level, but just think about what it would mean to forgive debts at the small level, how that would change lives in so many different ways. It is radical. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading this and, and I just thought, God, this, this, this just makes look, God look like he's a tree-hugging communist, right? He's environmentally conscious. He's talking about redistribution of wealth. He's a tree-hugging commie. Um, okay, but I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. But I hope that as you read this, you get a sense of how actually Jubilee can make us squirm a little bit. It can make us feel uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about politics I'm not going there. That's not what I'm saying. I think there's something deeper here about Jubilee that can really kind of tweak us. And this has to do with the question of what is freedom? What is freedom? How do we understand freedom? This might be seem obvious to you because obviously freedom is this idea of independence, of being able to do what I want to do, free will, self-determination, right? You've got William Wallace screaming, freedom, in Braveheart, right? Because he's going to say, no one's going to tell me what to do with my land. No one's going to tell me what to do. Freedom is this idea, I will do what I want to do. Self-determination. Now, there's some good things about that. There are some not so great things about that, but particularly for those of us who say that we follow Jesus and who believe in his word as a blueprint for our lives, the problem with that definition is that that's not the biblical definition. That's not how the Bible defines freedom. Because the Bible defines freedom as dependence on God. Total dependence on God. And we see this within that 
passage. We see it first in that last verse that we read in verse 23 where it says that God tells them, the land is not yours. The land is mine. And that's what actually made Jubilee possible, right? When he tells the people, hey, you need to give back because it's not even yours in the first place. So already we have this sense of what freedom is from him telling them, hey, the land's not yours. You don't own it. But if that doesn't go deep enough for you, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 55, this is what God tells the people. He says, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So as he discusses jubilee, as he discusses freedom, as he discusses what it means to be a part of this kind of celebration, a party to end all parties, the way he ends this conversation is to say, the people of Israel are my servants. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt into servitude to God. And this is his definition of what it means to be free. And it's not just here. If you go through the rest of the Bible, if you even look in the New Testament, this is a recurring theme. That freedom from something else is not just independence. It's not independent. You know, I can do whatever I want. Freedom from everything else is dependence on God. So if you look at 1 Peter 2, 16, it says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Romans 6, verse 22 but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So freedom is not complete independence. It is not self-determination. It is dependence on God. Now, somebody who really got this uh, was Bob Dylan. How many fans of Bob Dylan out there? A couple of fans. Okay, cool. Um, he went through what they call a Christian phase in the late 70s, and he wrote some songs that were Christian. And he wrote a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, it won a Grammy, and it goes, uh, it begins something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Right? So this was his song, and I think he was grasping what we were just talking about, what the Bible was saying, right? This idea that there is no real self-determination in the world. You're either serving one thing or you're serving God. So that was Bob Dylan's perspective. And then you have John Lennon. And the story goes that John Lennon saw Bob Dylan performing this on Saturday Night Live, and he was incensed. He was really tweaked by it. He was upset. And so he wrote his own parody of You Gotta Serve Somebody, and he wrote the song Serve Yourself. And so here are the lyrics that John Lennon wrote. To, uh, this is a chorus of the song. You gotta serve yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to serve yourself. Nobody's going to do it do for you. Well, you may believe in devils. You may believe in laws. But if you don't go out and serve yourself, lad, ain't no room service here. 
And if you actually read this, he's got two or three versions of this song out there. You can see how embittered John Lennon was, uh, how angry he was about this, and actually how bawdy and um, kind of crude he was in this song. I'm not going to, there's all sorts of lyrics. Anyway, but one of the things that's interesting about John Lennon's song and the contrasting it to Bob Dylan's is John Lennon embodies in his song this idea of what freedom is for most Americans, right? The, the sort of Braveheart view of freedom is independence. Freedom is self-determination. And this is what rubbed him wrong about Bob Dylan's song, right? This idea that no, nobody's going to take care of me. I got to do it myself because that's what freedom is. But there's also, as you listen to John Lennon's song, this kind of underbelly of what this definition of freedom means. Because when you get into it, there's a sense that what freedom means in this respect is we are all alone and we can't rely on anybody. Right? If, if we must determine what we do for ourselves, if free will is really about choosing our way through life, what that means is only one person can do that. Only I can do that. And the weight of that lays on each one of us individually because, after all, we are alone in this world. We can't depend on anybody else. That's the underbelly of this idea, this definition of freedom and self-determination. And if you listen to John Lennon's music, especially around this time, you can see that he, he just kind of imagined this world of freedom from religion and, and just embracing this idea that we are alone. And if we would just accept that, if we would embrace that, that there are no restrictions on us, the world would be a better place. Maybe we wouldn't fight as much because we would know and understand we must determine our own way. And the sad thing is, as I think that we have embraced that as a nation, that we have embraced this idea that we are alone in the world and that we must determine our own way, and it is fragmenting us, it is splintering us, and it is isolating us. The definition of freedom that says that self-determination leads to isolation. As more and more people have been grasping that, I think that we are becoming more and more indebted and more and more enslaved. What's fascinating about the historical record is that when you read Scripture, you realize that the Israelites actually never practiced Jubilee. They never did it. They never had a year of Sabbath. They never did it. Throughout their entire history, they couldn't do it. And no surprise, given human nature, um, given how we work, right, it's just so radical that they couldn't implement it. And as you know, in the course of history, the people of Israel rejected God's laws, and they were forced into exile. And the prophet Jeremiah, when he talked about exile, he predicted that the exile would last 70 years, which is an interesting number. But as it turns out, that number has real significance. Jeremiah also talked about during those 70 years that the land of Israel would enjoy its Sabbaths. 
all the Sabbaths that it didn't receive at the hand of the Israelites, in those 70 years, it would receive them. And as it turns out, 70 is the exact number of jubilees and Sabbath years that the Israelites did not observe in the years of them being a nation between the founding of the Solomon's temple and the year of exile. So when we see Jubilee in the Old Testament, we again, as with all these feasts, we see a shadow. They couldn't do it, but it was there. God told them about it because he wanted to point to something. If we are to understand Jubilee, if they are to understand Jubilee, we must know Jubilee differently. Not as an observance that happens year by year, but as a person. All these feasts, it's just fascinating as we have gone through this. I don't know if you've been impressed by this, but it's just so amazing to me how these seven feasts all were shadows that pointed forward to Jesus and pointed forward to Jesus' plan. And that is no less the case with Jubilee. And we see that most strongly in the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4. He has just uh, been baptized by John. He spent 40 days in the desert. He comes back to his home of Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. And let's read on what it says here. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We read these words earlier, right, from Isaiah 61. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a dramatic moment. I love it. It's so incredible just to imagine what it must have been like to be there in that moment, to hear Jesus say those words. He was proclaiming his mission statement. He was saying, Jubilee is here. Jubilee is my mission statement, he was saying. And more to the point, I think he was saying, I am Jubilee. I am Jubilee incarnate with you, in present to you. And he proceeds to do exactly what he said he would do. He proceeds to give and practice Jubilee. In the the next four chapters, Luke describes Jesus as healing a bedridden sick woman. He delivers a paralyzed man from his uh, brokenness, and he heals a man with leprosy, actually touches him. Not only does he heal his disease, but he restores his place in community and society. And he does this with other people. He restores a tax collector who was one of the most despised kind of people in that day to community. He forgives a prostitute. He is living out and practicing Jubilee. And what's fascinating is that he does this all throughout the countryside except in one place, except in Nazareth, the place that he began the place that he announced his mission was the one place, especially in Matthew, it says he did not do miracles. And if, you were to, if we were to continue to read this passage in Luke 4, you would see why. Because after he reads his mission statement, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? In essence, they don't trust him. 
And because they don't trust him, they don't experience jubilee. They don't experience the freedom that he brings into this world. The road to jubilee, to freedom, it doesn't begin with independence. It begins with interdependence. It begins with trust. And if I were to preach a message and I were to stop short and say, hey, Jesus means freedom for you. Jesus delivers you, which he does, absolutely. What I would be afraid of is that most of us would hear that freedom through the lens of John Lennon. That we would think that what Jesus means for me is that he sets me free from what ills me so that I can do whatever I want. So that I can determine my own way forward. But Jesus sets people free to trust him, to live dependent on him. And so when we are unshackled by our sin, when we are unshackled by our illness, by our addictions, by our separation from society, what that is meant to do is help us and lead us to embrace Jesus and fall at his feet and say, all that is mine is yours. And What's beautiful about this is I truly believe that trusting in Jesus is not an intellectual exercise. It is not a religious practice only. It has real impact on how we live our lives and what happens in our world. When I trust in Jesus, I know what that means for me is that I can go with less and give more. What it means for me is that I can experience less anxiety. What it means for me is I can think I don't need that thing to be happy in this world. There are deeper, more satisfying wells to drink from in Jesus. It means I am not alone, right? I don't have to determine my own way. I have someone I can trust in. When we think about things like national debt and credit cards, just to imagine what it would mean like if everybody was in that place, if our politicians we're in that place of trusting Jesus. If people were in that place of trusting Jesus, would we be in this place as a nation where we were so indebted? It's a hypothetical, it's a theoretical, but I really believe it would impact on a grand scale. When there is trust, there is satisfaction. When there is trust, there is peace. When there is trust, there is joy. So as with all these things, there are embodied practices that go along with it, as many feasts have, a feast and a practice. How do we do Jubilee today? I'm going to give you one thing that I think is really related to what Jesus says and what even in Leviticus 25 says. I'm going to encourage you, when you go home today, to have a prayer in your heart. And as you look around wherever you live and you look at the things you own, I wonder what it would feel like to pick something up and to say, this is yours, Jesus. This belongs to you. And as you go through and as you say that to one thing to the next, just to pay attention to what your heart does. Does it rebel? Does it feel anxiety to say this is yours? Or does it feel rest? Does it feel peace? Does it feel release? Does it feel joy? So I send you with that, that encouragement to practice what it means to begin on the road to jubilee, to begin on the road to freedom in one of many ways. Certainly, 
I don't have complete trust in Jesus. I think this is a lifelong journey to do this kind of thing, and we need these kind of practices to help us to get there. And that's one place to start. And I think as we do that, we can think to ourselves, whose song am I singing? Am I singing Bob Dylan's song, or am I singing John Lennon's song? Kids are a great way to exemplify trust, aren't they? If you think about a child, he knows dependence, and it sets him free. They don't have to worry about tomorrow. They're dependent. And when you see a child who does not show trust, that's when we say a child has lost their innocence. They've, they've become disillusioned with an adult, right? But when a child trusts their caretakers, they live in freedom. So as we end this sermon, as we transition into a time of communion, our kids are going to come in. And they're going to celebrate, and they're going to show us what joy looks like and what also what trust looks like. We're going to sing a song of that kind of trust and that kind of freedom as we do that. So let me pray for us. Jesus, you have come to set us free. You have come that we may know freedom. And so, Lord, there are many things that we bring here today, anxiety, where we bring even our own uh, greed or our own uh, unwillingness to put limits on ourselves. All those things we bring, and it weighs us down. It burdens us. And so, Jesus, this morning we do ask that you would set us free, that we would know what it's like to live embracing you. So, Jesus, as our kids come in, as they celebrate with us, as we sing this song, pray that you are present to us. I pray that we would be able to embrace you. By your spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production. We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you, and God bless.